And welcome back to The Goods, a film podcast. I'm here with Dan as we continue our coverage of Young Adult Literature Month. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing pretty well, Brian. Good, glad to be back. Glad to be talking about a, an adaptation of a novel that was very important to me when I was a young adult. Oh, is that so? Well, that's interesting. Because, listeners, we are discussing The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which was adapted from a 1999 novel by Chiva... That's not the part of the name I thought I would mess up. <laughs> uh, it was written by a guy named Stephen Chaboski. I'm going to assume that that's how you say it, like proboscis. Uh, but it's C-H-B-O-S-K-Y. Unusual... Spelling. The, that Those combination of three letters to open a word is not that common. It's like a Klasky Shupo in one. Mm, yeah, something like that. But uh, not only did he write the book, but when he sold the movie rights, he specified that he needed to be allowed to also write and direct the film which is a, a pretty cool power move, I would say. It's like the M. Night Shyamalan approach. Good way to launch your movie career if you require, as a stipulation of selling your script, that you also be allowed to direct. Yeah, he had an interest in film. I think he did like a student movie or an indie movie, but he, I guess he decided that he was going to do it. It turned out to be a good career move for him. I mean, he's done a few movies now in the, the years since. Yeah, a couple years ago I read he directed that movie Wonder about the kid with facial deformities. And more recently he made the Dear Evan Hansen movie, which met with kind of some mixed reviews. But I don't think this is the last time we're going to name drop Evan Hansen as we discuss Perks of Being a Wallflower. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but his niche of awkward boys in the throes of adolescence i guess is his theme right depressed kids who write letters to themselves does that happen in wonder too uh no it happens in evan hansen i guess you were trying to loop that one in as well i i didn't pick up on that i don't know exactly what happens in that one uh, the kid wears a space helmet and under the space helmet he has a weird face and that's probably why we're now into our fourth week of Young Adult Month. And how are we feeling, Dan? I'm feeling good. I like these kinds of movies. I've enjoyed everything we've watched so far, to some extent at least, even if I haven't given everything the strongest of ratings. But, you know, this is like the kind of stuff... I feel like different people have different kinds of movies that they can just... Like, it's their pizza dinner. It's like, you don't think about it, you just eat it and enjoy it. And even if it's not very good, you're still having a good time. And for me, these stupid dramas with elements of comedy or comedies with elements of drama about dorks coming of age. I don't know. I, that's the shit that I eat up. Like some people do horror movies. Some people do dumb action movies from the eighties. The, the, the coming of age ones are the ones for me. So I, I have been having a pretty good time, but I can certainly see that when you watch a whole bunch of them in a row, you start to see a lot of conformity. I would say <laughs> it's the shit you eat up. You eat shit. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you got me. 
I ate pieces of shit like you for breakfast. Classic Adam Sandler comedy there. What's your default movie, Brian? If you just turn it on a movie that you you feel like you're going to have a good time and enjoy and not have to think too much about, what is that for you? I think my default genre is like underdog stories. Weirdos who do weird stuff and suddenly become famous and successful because of it. Interesting. I didn't even think about that as a subgenre. Maybe there's a little bit of overlap at times with this kind of material. But uh, yeah, I've seen some similarities as we go along. I'll say my motivation for this pick in specific is that at one point, my brother, I think when he was starting high school, he decided that he was going to go down the list of coming of age movies on Wikipedia and just watch all of them. Wow. I don't know how many he got through, but it was a lot. And so this is a genre that's close to him uh, more so than it is to me. But I've picked up some recommendations from him. And this is one he certainly talked about. One of his favorites is Stand By Me. Also Boyhood. Boyhood and Stand By Me, he locked into more than others. uh, But like his senior year, he did this thing at the end of high school I think it was called Coffee House. Oh, man, I wish I had him on as a guest so he could actually tell you what this was, because I was off at college and I don't know exactly what went down. But they played it was student music groups, like small ensembles to use a dorky band class word. I think they would probably just call themselves bands played at this uh, event at a coffee shop. And he and his friends had a band where he was the singer and there was like a guitarist and a drummer or something. I've just seen the video, but they performed Stand By Me, the song. And they also performed, I think it's called Hero, but it's the theme from Boyhood. Mm. And like while they were playing the Stand By Me song, a train went by right outside the building they were in. <laughs> And so it was like very resonant. And this was like his last day of senior year story. Wow. So it's poetic. I I think he would vibe with you on a lot of these coming of age high school stories. Yeah, for sure. The funny thing is, I feel like I don't know if I'm pickier about what makes them great or what the case is. But even though I I really enjoy these kinds of movies, the, the ones so far that have been coming of age, I would say I, I haven't graded all that strongly. Probably been a, some fives and sixes. I, I guess I gave American Graffiti a high seven. I gave the stupid uh, Dick Time Machine one a six. But I've generally been in the five range for the coming of age movies so far. So we'll see where I land tonight. Yeah, I've been in a lot of five territory lately. But... What about maybe if we look beyond the ones we've covered specifically, do you have favorite young adult movies in your mind or maybe books that you really loved? Yeah, so so my selection for my favorite young adult themed movies, it's going to vary a lot depending on whether you're limiting it to adaptations the way that we are this month or whether you could count any coming of age movie, even if it wasn't an adaptation, because a handful of my favorite movies ever are young adult slash coming of age slash teen slash high school movies that are all kind of overlapping theme and genre. 
Days and Confused, one of my favorite movies ever, but that is not adapted from anything. Uh, same director as Boyhood. I actually haven't seen Boyhood, but it's one I want to see at one point. I know that you have tilted negative feelings towards that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's come up a couple times. Boyhood's not my favorite. Uh, longtime listeners will know that was maybe my first exposure to the works of Richard Lenklater, master of making movies where nothing happens. <laughs> And then later, Dan said, oh, you got to watch this movie. I, I love this movie. Come over for my birthday, and we're going to watch Dazed and Confused. And I saw that one, and my thought was, wow, nothing happened in that movie. And then we start a podcast together where we're discussing films. Richard Linklater comes up in discussion, and hey, what do you know? He made that one, too. So, <laughs> Yeah. I haven't rewatched in a long time. But one that really stuck with me, both the book and the movie, is called The Spectacular Now. And it's about a alcoholic high school senior who connects with a mistreated young woman. And they kind of connect with each other and bring the better out of each other. That one I really like. I like how it depicts its characters, particularly its protagonist, as like... I don't know, not heroic. I mean, in, in in this movie, in The Perks of Being a Wallflower, like Logan Lerman is a total self-insert dreamy guy, even with his weird baggage and backstory and stuff. But I don't know. I like it when there's a little more texture and darkness with that's not just strictly melodrama for the characters. So that's that's another one I really like. And... I really like all of the John Green books. The, I mean, I've mentioned him as being one of my favorites. We brought one John Green adaptation thus far. If we hadn't, I definitely would have picked one for this month because he's now had two of his books adapted into movies, one adapted into a miniseries, and another movie is on the way. So I think it'll be almost all of his, his books. Um, a couple of things a little more off the beaten path in terms of my favorites. Uh, there's this one that I've read three times that just I don't know why it has stuck in my head. It's this 550 page book. It, there's no reason it needs to be that long, but it's only good because it is that long. It's called Tales of the Madman Underground, and it's a like stream of consciousness. You follow this person every single minute of the day for a week about this kid in 1973 who, again, he is in a he has a rough home life and he has a bunch of friends who have a rough home life. And it's just this like really immersive uh, deep dive into this character's life with some really memorable scenes. Uh, that's another one of my favorites. When I was a little bit younger, my favorite uh, for years, I would tell you my favorite book was Walk Two Moons by Shannon Creech. That's on the younger end of young adult, like Typically, we've said young adult are books marketed to 12 to 18 year olds. That one, like the upper age limit of what it's marketed to is around 12 or 13. But I would still say that, I mean, I still see it listed as young adult in multiple places. So I would still count that as one of my favorites for sure. And uh, another one that I thought about bringing at some point that I want to revisit to determine if I still like is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl which came out right around the same time as The Fault in Our Stars and is probably not quite as good as The Fault in Our Stars, but it's like weirder than The Fault in Our Stars. And I liked how it fit the cancer trope, but also like 
totally rejected many of the things that one takes for granted in a cancer teenage cancer story. Um, and that one, I don't know if I already said this, but that one also had a movie that I liked, but I not sure I would need, want to revisit now that I have seen a lot more movies since then. The last one I wanted to mention that stuck with me really big, really hard is this book called Grasshopper Jungle. So it's written by Andrew Smith, who back when I was really keeping up with books, he was one of the the top YA authors. And I, I read and more or less liked just about everything that he released. But the best one that he wrote, the the most the weirdest one was this called Grasshopper Jungle. And it's this massive epic, like across hundreds of years, but mostly centered around this 16 year old kid who is basically witnessing the apocalypse because of these genetically engineered giant bugs taking over the world. Meanwhile, he's in like a love triangle. His best friend is gay and in love with him. And he's in love with this other girl and she's got her own stuff going on. And it's, it's just really bizarre. Like it has strong hints of slaughterhouse five to it. And like the kind of absurdity of everything, but also very, much metaphor of teen angst and I, I really dug that one. So, and then the other one really important to me stuck with me five stars on Goodreads for me perks of being a wallflower. This is kind of a generationally important YA book. It really brought to the forefront of popularity, this style of coming of age novel that dealt with problematic characters and problematic situations with darkness, but also like kind of beauty and seeing some of the beauty in the midst of that darkness and just doing it in a really fresh way, really strong voice, really respecting the intelligence of the, the reader, not pandering to them at all. So um, this is another, I, I really think it's a great novel. I reread it this week and it holds up. The, I mean, there's some corny things about it. It's like a checklist of every single hot button issue, about half of which got cut from the movie. Um, there, there's like some more, there's like an abortion subplot that got cut from the movie and yeah, it's, it's, it's a great one. So I, that, that was why I, good select topic for this week of what are some of our favorites, because this book is one of my favorites. Um, so those are kind of some of mine, but what about you, Brian? Do you have any favorites that we haven't yet talked about? Yeah, I've got a couple. Uh, I'm glad that you got like some weird genre stuff in the mix there with the grasshopper story. That one's got me kind of curious. I mean, obviously like it comes down to is Harry Potter in contention? Because if it is, obviously that's a favorite of us both. Oh yeah. I didn't even mention that. You're right. But I think I name dropped it a couple episodes back. My favorite young adult book come movie is holes by Lewis Satcher. He was also in that case, involved with writing the script. And the only reason I didn't pick that as an episode this month is because I didn't want to spoil the story during our recap, but I really, really love that one. It might be my favorite non-linear film in terms of things being presented out of chronological order. It's got, like, things unfolding in three different eras that, like, all the mysteries come together as bits and pieces are presented yeah, Holes the Book is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, that's, I might have said it if I had not known you were about to say it. It was among my favorites. The movie I saw once when I was a lot younger and I remember thinking was good, 
but didn't quite hold up to the novel for me. So I want to see it again with your your uh, high praise in mind and, and re- give it another watch because it's been two decades probably since well, I saw it. Probably worth noting that I saw the movie first. Mm. And as I've mentioned, when you do it that way, you don't mind as much like things that were dropped from the book. It's more like you you get more now but you frame it in the context of the story that you got from the movie. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's all still there. So, like, you don't get bummed out that things were cut out. That's a really good point. And I think we talked, I talked a lot about that in the Paper Towns episode, how I actually ended up, I think, giving that one a lower rating than you, even though the story itself was really important to me because... In some ways, I was judging it as an adaptation of a thing that I was already really beloved. And there's definitely some of that going on here tonight when we're talking about perks. But I it had been long enough since I had read the book that I was able to kind of engage it on its own a little. There was a lot of things I didn't remember. So but no, I think that's a good point that it's very it's very different going from movie to book than from book to movie when you're doing an adaptation. Yeah, but you know, holes. The title works on multiple levels because it, like, it's actually about the characters literally digging holes, but then also there's holes in your understanding of what's going on and those are gradually filled in as you get the different layers of, of material and, and the things happening at different times. Very cool. Since you mentioned Lewis Satcher, he wrote one of my top 10 favorite books of all time, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Have you read the Wayside School books? I think I read one of them in its entirety, and I know that those are dear to you. Yes. I can't remember if I read it before or after the series was covered in your Top 100 Everything blog series. Mm. I'm sure it was lying around like the school library in elementary school, and, and that's when I read at least some of it. Yeah, it's one of those, yeah. Anyways, I've cut you off twice now. Go ahead. Oh, well... If weird genre stuff is on the potential table, I also want to give kudos to Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Have you ever read that one? No, I'm a little familiar with it, but tell us about it. So it's like a coming of age story with these two boys kind of along the lines of the outsiders just in the sense that it's it's like a group of boys but with a creepy circus in the mix oh man it's it's like growing up in the in the 50s and lots of like purple prose about growing up then throw in a creepy circus that comes to town and there's a like a sinister ringmaster dude who masters the forces of time and he can like make you grow up with this time-turning merry-go-round that he has. And in some ways, It by Stephen King is almost like a retelling or an update of Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, because in that, you've got the, the clown monster who comes back every 27 years. And it's kind of a similar thing where the circus is like a generational thing and it like never dies. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Stephen King has, has said that he was a big fan of something wicked this way comes, but uh, it is one of my favorite books. 
that has a little too much monster to be in consideration here. It's definitely more a monster story than just a coming-of-age story, but I, I think Something Wicked This Way Comes could maybe make it as a pick. Uh, if you have never read it before, I would say give that one a look. Uh, there was a movie of it uh, um, that Disney made in its weird... 80s phase when they were kind of flirting with darkness and they also made uh black cauldron and there was another spooky one uh the the watcher in the woods hmm that's interesting so maybe maybe come halloween season we'll have to check out one of those yeah that might be fun because i haven't i haven't seen any of those i have seen black cauldron but not those other ones so you kind of touched on something. There's a fine line between an adult book that depicts kids and teens and a young adult book. And I think some of that is like the old joke. What's the difference between uh, a musical and an opera? Do you know the answer, Brian? Hmm. Uh, I would guess that in the opera, they don't sing in English. No, the difference between a musical and an opera is that an opera is performed at an opera house. In other words, it's all like a marketing thing. There's not necessarily a semantical difference between the two of them. I mean, there's you might have certain things that you think fit in one spot or the other, but in much the same way, there are indeed English language operas, and there are, I guess the parallel here is, there are adult books that are focused on teens, but still marketed and sold as adult books and therefore are not young adult books and it's it's kind of a weird fine line like there's a book never let me go by kazuo ishiguro and sometimes like in the case of stephen king for example if it's an author who otherwise writes for adults if they write a young adult book or a book about teens or whatever it's still because the that author's audience is adults would be marketed as an adult book and so Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro, who's one of my favorite authors, is about these teens who are at a boarding school. And there ends up being mysterious genre elements in that one that are not clear up front, but gradually become clear. And that's another book that's a masterpiece. But, you know, that's it's in all but name a YA book, except it's written by an author who generally writes adult books. And I think... If Stephen King probably has some of those, too, in there. Yeah, that's a great point. So, listeners, what you should take away from this discussion is that there's a lot of good books out there. All these books and lots of other books, too, can be found at your local library, as they <laughs> say at the end of every episode of Arthur, which just ended, by the way. Oh, man. Finally, after 25 years... If you didn't know, Arthur's been going for 25 years. <laughs> they just had their finale. <laughs> it's almost Simpsons level. And yeah, no, exactly. And it's the same case where the characters have never aged. So they like keep updating technology. Everybody's got tablets now and smartphones, but they are still in third grade until this episode where at the very end it jumped forward 20 years. Not 25 years, just 20, but. You saw a little glimpse of them as 28-year-olds instead of 8-year-olds. I thought I read, too, that another cool thing about the finale was they brought back at least one, possibly more, voice actors from the original cast to play their characters. And they were kids when they played them in the original. 
like season one or it may not have been season one, but early in the run. And then now here they are as adults playing the adult versions of those characters. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't read that. What I think is interesting is that Buster's been the same Buster all along. Like I could still recognize Buster, even though they've been through like 10 Arthurs. (laughs) Wow. It's like the Simpsons where they have an adult voicing the kids. Right. So the voice stays basically the same. But much as I would like to, we're not here to talk Arthur. This is not the <laughs> Arthur cast. Turned to my brother and his radio co-host for thorough coverage of the complexity of Binky Barnes. <laughs> here, though, we're going to talk Perks of Being a Wallflower, if you're ready. Let's do it. So this movie takes place in the early 90s. Some of these details I got from Wikipedia because I did not notice them in the film. Uh, According to that, it's 1991. I was able to pick up that it was some point in the past because everybody's listening to cassette tapes and making cassette tapes. And and that was my clue that it was not the present. But was there anything else to tell us that, Dan? It's a very good question. And the answer is there is a small number of references that would make you pick this up as the early 90s. There's a mention that one of the characters, Patrick, goes to Washington because that's where the music is, which is very clearly a grunge reference, which was early 90s. But in general, I would say this movie could be anything from like 1975 to like 2000 or something like that, or maybe 1997 before CDs were really big. Yeah, like I got a good portion of the movie in thinking it was just the present of 2012 when the movie came out. But then once characters are bonding, everybody's saying, oh, he made me a mixtape. It's like, what? Wait a minute. And then they're pulling out all their cassette tapes. And it's like, whoa, okay. I got to reframe my my understanding of the situation. Because, I mean, another thing is... All the hipster kids are saying, well, you know, it's better to listen to things on vinyl, which is something that they could be saying in 2022. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like ever since vinyl stopped being the primary musical medium, that's something you could say. But here in 1991, we meet our protagonist, Charlie, who is just starting high school. We get some narration from his perspective, so we're hearing his running inner monologue. He's talking about how he has, like, a running tally of days until high school is going to be over. So, also through this narration and the title of the book, if you didn't know, we come to understand that he is, like, very nervous and shy and wary of social interactions. We also pick up piecemeal that he has dealt with some more serious mental health issues. Now, Wikipedia says that here at the start, he's just been released from a mental facility. I did not pick up on that. Is that ever stated? Is that in the book? Yeah, a lot of his backstory and his perspective is just totally not different, but Uh, in much sharper relief and fleshed out much more in the book because the book is entirely an epistolary novel, which is to say 
it is all letters. So we get a little bit of that framing device here in the movie, which I think you'll talk, maybe you can talk about here in a bit. But you learn much more that he is, has dealing with demons and had like a really hard time. And yes, yeah, spent some time at a place. It's kind of vague and he kind of tries to not dwell on it in his retrospective thoughts when he's writing out these letters. But definitely played up much more in the novel that this is a troubled kid, at least early on in the story, for sure. Yeah, but like through the narration and also discussions that he has with his parents and stuff, we hear that he has good days and bad days and that sometimes whatever condition he's dealing with gets bad. Like at dark times in the movie, he's going to say, oh, it's getting bad. And his struggles are represented in some kind of interesting editing. Like we get flashbacks to things that happened in his past. I mean, I guess that's what a flashback is. And we get glimpses bit by bit of his Aunt Helen. And this is all like interwoven throughout the texture of the movie. And so we're, we're learning more about what exactly happened in the past. But things we pick up pretty quickly are that the Aunt 2 dealt with depression. And at some point she died in a car crash. And this is... It's a pretty strong element here in the movie, but it's really a recurring thing in the book where he is kind of framing a lot of his sadness about the fact that this is a line he repeats a lot. My my favorite person in the world was my aunt. Is it Helen? Is that what it is? I think so. Yeah. Um, my favorite person in the world was my, my aunt Helen and like different things that make him think of her and sometimes at weird times. And how the death of her hit him really, really hard. And one thing it's alluded to here, and it's much even more prominent in the book, that he feels he is connected to Aunt Helen's death in some ways. And I'll say at this point that I related to some of the things he's going through. Not everything. Uh, This is like a very hyperbolic situation he's been through. Like, if it can go wrong, it has gone wrong for him. And, like, his shyness is extreme. He doesn't want to participate in class and doesn't really want to interact with anybody. Or is just hesitant to do so. So, I don't know. Like, at some points I've felt like I'm on the outside looking in, but for him it's just taken to the nth degree. Like we get a scene where he's in his English class. By the way, his English teacher is Paul Rudd, (laughs) Ant-Man himself. There's a lot of names in this movie. That was something you said about Outsiders, where it's... uh, Although there, I think it's more of lightning in a bottle because they were all young and hadn't been stars yet, whereas here, they were probably all stars already and just wanted to get involved with this project. It's not quite Outsiders level of names, but there are definitely some names. I mean, I guess it depends how much stock you put into like Melanie Linsky and Dylan McDermott and and some of these other ones. But there's a Joan Cusack shows up at some point. Not to spoil all the the surprise appearances here. There there are some names. That's true. No, you're right. Uh, I mean, Joan Cusack is a pretty big name. I think Paul Rudd is definitely a big name. I think 
him and Emma Watson are the two biggest names here. That's true. But uh, yeah, I mean, Dylan McDermott, what I recognized him as is the star of a couple seasons of American Horror Story. You, you got Ezra Miller going to show up pretty soon. Oh, dude, and Ezra Miller. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about Ezra Miller in just a second here. Um, and you mentioned Aunt Helen and Melanie Linsky, and she was featured prominently in our episode about Happy Christmas, the Mumblecore movie we watched just a couple months ago. She's a star. Yeah, literally the only other thing I've seen her in, but it, it I did recognize her, although not 100% because she's not doing her New Zealand accent, which is going to be a commonality among several of the stars of this movie, people being fake Americans. I have some opinions about accents in this movie, or lack thereof. I guess, do you say if... Is it an American? I guess it's an American accent. It's weird to say it. I know. I it trips me up too, but <laughs> there is an American accent. Yeah. But yeah, so he goes to Paul Rudd English class, and Paul Rudd is like quizzing the students, giving them questions. Well, who wrote the first serialized novel? And like nobody knows the answer, but looking over Charlie's shoulder. Paul Rudd sees that he's writing down the answers to the questions and he's correct, but he's not raising his hand to contribute. I don't know. Like, I think other people in the class would get these answers. These aren't super deep cut English class questions. Did you know who was prominent in the origination of serial novels, Dan? So I don't know if I would have gotten that one right. Um, I do. I did know that he was famous for it, but they guessed Shakespeare, which is just the worst possible guess. He didn't even write prose. Yeah, they're, they're, they're throwing in some dumb answers here so that Charlotte can look extra smart. The thing you got to remember is they're supposed to be 14-year-olds. And one thing that kind of bothers me, you talked a little bit about how he's kind of shy and antisocial to a strong degree. But he's also 20-year-old Logan Lerman his smile is heartwarming. He's a beautiful, beautiful man. He is not someone who you would expect to be a uh, outcast, a pariah. Not that he's necessarily a pariah here. They, it's more of his shyness rather than his people not liking him. But I actually liked this casting more this time around. It really bothered me the first time I saw the movie because I always imagined him as being someone really gawky. But... He he does a pretty good job overall, but he's still like uh, he's got a heartthrob element to him, which throws me off a little bit. That is interesting. The uh, Wikipedia article said some critics pointed out that these people are clearly older than they're supposed to be. That they don't look like high school freshmen, which didn't pull me out of it too much. That's par for the course in Hollywood. Right. And as far as him being too good looking for the character, I mean, that's a good point. At the same time, though, like I think last week we were talking about how it's a dangerous idea to say that somebody's like too funny to be depressed. Uh, you could also say you don't want to think that somebody is too hot to be depressed. I think that's true for sure. That's a good point. The other question was uh, about a box office, like they would take money at a Shakespeare play in a box and, and lock it behind the counter. And that gave us the name box office. Nobody gets that. It's like, dude, just 
context clues. These aren't hard. <laughs> also, though, I feel like English class is where the dorky English kid should shine. It's like, and I, I mean, in time he does, but dude, just raise your hand and give the right answer to the question. Why? Like, even in my own shyest moments, contributing in English class is easy, dude. It's just, you do it. Just do it, Logan Lerman. Come on. Yeah, one thing that I think the movie really does well is showing him gradually building that confidence. Like, we're going to talk about moments, oh, at a football game where he is sitting by himself and he actually decides to be the one to walk up and talk to these other kids and gradually having more of those. So I think having this at the beginning, like, level sets and eventually gives us some character growth. Yeah, I guess I agree. Uh, Because... Also, day one, he meets this senior named Patrick, who is played by Ezra Miller, and he's kind of a class clown, and he's messing around in the shop class. Did you ever take any shop class, Dan? I did the sixth grade version of it. I don't think I ever used a bandsaw, but we we did some stuff. And then I guess the ninth grade tech class had some shop elements to it. A little bit. Did you do a shop class ever? Yeah, I did shop class in middle school, and then junior year, I took something called material science, which was just shop class again. And then senior year, everybody at our science-focused magnet school, we all had to be part of a lab where we would dedicate the year to working on a specific science project. And I was in the prototyping lab, which was just shop class again. And now I'm working in construction this year, and it's it's like I'm back in shop class. <laughs> so I do have some background in that. Uh, so this was an environment I recognized. And Patrick is the senior student dicking around in intro shop. And he's, like, doing a mocking imitation of the shop teacher. And who should walk in as the shop teacher but horror movie makeup icon Tom Savini? Which just blew my mind i've never seen tom savini in like a straight drama (laughs) usually he's in a robert rodriguez movie with a cock gun strapped to his pants (laughs) or like sawing zombies in half and intestines spraying everywhere so there is a very legitimate well i don't know maybe very legitimate isn't a stretch there is a connection here and i'm going to share that now I watched this movie twice this week. I watched it once without the commentary and then once with one of the two commentaries that's available on the DVD. So there's the DVD has a commentary of just Steven Chbosky and then another one with Steven Chbosky and most of the cast, like honestly, at least most of the teens in the cast, like eight other people. So I listened to the Steven Chbosky one and one thing he really emphasized that I don't even know if I could have said until I listened to the commentary is that this movie is takes place in Pittsburgh. Oh, in fact, it was shot in location on Pittsburgh. In fact, this is actually kind of cool. Like the there's scenes in a diner and that was the actual diner that he went to when he was in high school there. Some of the scenes shot at a house are shot in front of his childhood house in Pittsburgh. 
And I guess when you're the guy who has the best selling novel and you've signed this deal to have total creative control, you can do stuff like that. But he was an aspiring filmmaker in Pittsburgh. And I think we talked about this. Is that where George Romero is from? And also Mr. Rogers, too? That's right. Yeah. And so I don't know exactly what we said, but that's that's true. And weirdly enough, they came up together. They were making Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood together. Like George Romero is a cameraman or something, a film student helping film it. And of course, the, the Savini connection is to Romero. Right. So they made Night of the Living Dead in the Pittsburgh area. And then 10 years later, they made Dawn of the Dead around the same area, Monroeville, which is where the mall is. I've gone to visit there. And Dawn of the Dead is when Tom Savini started working with George Romero, doing all the makeup effects. And so that's the one really where the gore just explodes. So that's that's where I recognize him from. He's got a cameo in that. He's in From Dusk Till Dawn, the Robert Rodriguez film. He, he goes around and does horror cons and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got a recognizable face. Yeah. So that when he walks in casually to this scene, I was like, what? <laughs> what about Ezra Miller? Have you seen other Ezra Miller films? So I've seen him in the, the Harry Potter spinoff fantastic what's it called fantastic beasts and where to find them oh wait does he play credence yeah whatever the creepy guy is yeah the creepy dude okay all right that makes sense i didn't place him but i was like if he's in those movies that's who he's playing yeah because what i know him from is probably his biggest starring role which is we need to talk about kevin about a kid who grows up to be a school shooter and man, if we ever did like a disturbing movie month, <laughs> I'd pick that one because that movie just made me like sick to my stomach. It was stuck in my brain for a long time after I watched it. Wow. Have you seen that one? No. So I have not seen that one. We can talk school shootings at some point. <laughs> Very different performance here. That's what I'll say. Like if I didn't know Ezra Miller was in this movie. I might not have even recognized him because he's like the most upbeat, happy-go-lucky. He runs into some bad stuff and he's got to deal with some stuff, but like he's the class clown. He's the goofy guy who is going to like be the manic pixie dream guy. And even that I think undersells the performance. This is like by a, a whole tier the best performance in the movie. He's just so funny and charming and just totally encapsulates this character where you forget that he is anything other than the actual character he's playing. Just totally embodies him. Yeah, super likable, whereas any other place that I've never seen him, he's like, makes your skin crawl guy. He's like, I want to back away from this person. But it's funny. One thing I've never aired on in the now almost 10 years that I've seen this movie is that that is the thing they absolutely nailed was the casting of Patrick Ezra Miller, just blowing this role away. He still has some intensity to him, but he also just has this fun energy to him. Like you're saying. So yeah, I I agree. He doesn't kill John C. Riley in this movie. No, 
which I know, I, I don't even know how I know, but I know that a bow and arrow is involved. Yeah, it, very weird. Who commits a school shooting with a bow and arrow? How are you going to rack up a body count with a bow and arrow? But I don't know. That's his gimmick. So that that's another one that's based on a book. It's written from the mom's perspective. And I read about a quarter of the book until it got to when it was talking about her pregnancy. And I, by the way, I hadn't looked at the author's name and I had been thinking it was written by a woman this whole time. And then when it talked about pregnancy, it did not resemble pregnancy. And I, at least what I haven't experienced it myself, but like how the women I've encountered actually talk about pregnancy. And I was like, this feels like it was written by a man, but I could have sworn this was written by a woman. And then I looked at the front and it was written by a man. I was like, God damn it. And I stopped reading the book at that point. But and I've never seen the movie. So anyways. Yeah, I mean, a, a big point in that is that like he's born evil essentially and that the mother is completely blameless it's all nature no nurture he comes into the world as a sociopath and there's nothing she could have ever done and i mean maybe there's truth to that it's it's weird it's dark we're not here to talk about that one <laughs> we don't need to talk about kevin right now <laughs> episode title we don't need to talk about kevin yeah <laughs> Pretty soon, we get a scene where Charlie's at a football game, and the only person he knows in the stands is Patrick, and so he decides to go up and sit next to Patrick. And what I noticed preparing my notes is, like, what is he even doing at the football game? Like, the very act of going to a football game is, like, a social thing to do. Like, how did he end up there? What The reason that I was at a football game in high school is because I was in the marching band, which is like kind of a dorky thing to do, kind of a, but it's a reason to be there that's not like a social, re it's kind of a social reason, it's kind of a extracurricular reason. There's different dimensions to it. Dan was also in the marching band, but like, I don't know if I wasn't in the marching band, if I would have gone to a football game. Yeah, no, I, I think there's something to that. And this also circles back a little bit to how the casting feels kind of odd and just the character doesn't match what I had Charlie as in my head. Because in the book, he reads as more like analytical. It's not quite autistic. It's parts of it are a little bit like that, but where he's doing things that he knows a high schooler should do were a high schooler to be normal. Oh. And so he, he does some stuff like that. Okay. Performative. It, it doesn't quite click here. Performative and like trying to, yeah, act the role, even if he doesn't feel the role or whatever. Yeah. Oh, man. That, yeah, I can see that. But because he's sitting next to Patrick, he's there to meet Emma Watson when she comes to sit down. She's playing a character named Sam, short for Samantha, and she's now going to complete our Emma trifecta. We had a Emma Stone starring role a few weeks back. And then like two weeks ago, we had Emma Roberts. Now here's Emma Watson. The full Emma. <laughs> yep, we're, we've got full Emma right now. Rank the Emmas. How would you rank the Emmas? I, I guess there's different like metrics you could use. Yeah, different Emma criteria. Uh, I would say, hmm. Let's put it this way. You are 
uh, casting director and you're doing a movie, uh, let's call it a comedy drama, and you have one phone call to make, whose agent are you calling? They tell you you can only have one Emma. One Chris and one Emma. <laughs> so do you go Evans, Hemsworth, or Pine? And Stone, Watson, or Roberts? Are you... I think you might get your most bang for your buck with Stone. Yeah. I might personally seek out Roberts. She's a value pick. Yeah. What What would you go with? What are you feeling? No, I, I think Stone, Roberts, Watson is the ranking yeah. for me. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily like in terms of attractiveness, which I feel like is sometimes how some of... Right. No, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, <laughs> but I think most value for your movie, you got to go with Emma Stone. Yeah. Yeah, she she I think she brings the most. But Emma Watson is not doing her British accent. And I think with her performance there are moments where like you can almost tell she's not American. Moments? <laughs> Literally every word that comes out of her mouth, she's like straining not to she's like what would an American say? how would an American say this word? Like every word you can feel her straining to say the right <laughs> version of that word. So she doesn't get outed. It's like, if there's an R in the word, say the R. Like, it's it's it debilitates her performance because she's supposed to deliver these really, like, heartfelt monologues. And she can't get through a sentence without, like, trying to say the right thing. And it's, I don't know, it frustrated me so much watching it. She was really having a hard time here. This movie bumps up maybe a whole is a good point if you just let Emma Watson let her be British, let her be, don't be a coward, Stephen Trubisky. Let her speak in her natural tongue. <laughs> Dude, it's like in uh, Happy Christmas. They let Melanie Linsky or whatever her name is talk in her New Zealand accent or whatever it is. Right. She doesn't talk too much in this movie because she's only in flashbacks. So I. I didn't pick up any weirdness in the accent, but she literally only says like maybe a sentence at a time. Just a horrible American accent by Emma Watson. <laughs> I the I guess the reason I am kinder is there's not one specific word that really threw me. Um I was I was like trying to listen for it, but yeah, there is a weird like stiltedness to it. It reminds me of uh youtube clip i saw back in the day of the different harry potter stars trying american accents have you ever seen this it was like on one of the talk shows no i haven't like, like maybe jimmy kimmel or something uh but they had uh ron harry hermione and malfoy tom felton and tom felton did the best job he was pretty funny like one of the things that they had them say for whatever reason is can i have an order of mozzarella sticks <laughs> and one of the interesting things i don't know sometimes in english accents it's like when the word ends with an a sound normally they'll add an r it's like the opposite yeah i saw it and it's like well wait a minute how come you when it ends with an r you don't say it it's like i saw a murder it's like, no, you saw a murder. You got your R's all mixed up. So, like, Ron is like, I'd like some mozzarella sticks. Uh, but uh, Tom Felton comes and he says, Hey, buddy, man, can I get some mozzarella sticks, please? <laughs> and I, I like his delivery quite a bit. I feel like I haven't seen him in much since Harry Potter. 
I don't know what he's up to. Yeah, maybe he can disappear into the background. I I feel like people would place him. Yeah, maybe he should uh, call into the podcast someday. <laughs> we can share some mozzarella sticks. <laughs> but uh, the matter at hand here is wallflowers, and now he's bonding with some new friends, and Charlie is learning more about this Emma Watson character, Sam. And the Ezra Miller guy, Patrick, and they're going to kind of be his manic pixie dream duo. They're going to introduce him to the the larger social scene. Uh, by the way, they're both seniors and he's a freshman. Very implausible. This was weird to me. Did you? I mean, again, we were both in marching band, so I feel like that's the only reason I had some friends who were a different grade than I was. But even then, seniors with freshmen would be a stretch. I agree. I, I think it's implausible that a gawky, antisocial freshman would like super click with these seniors who are three years older than him and have all these intensive life experiences. There are moments when like the way that the seniors interact with him comes across as like almost pity or something. And those, I don't know, I could see like a freshman bullying pulled into the crowd and not necessarily pity, but like, uh, oh, we got to support our freshmen, etc. But there's an air of inauthenticity always. Like you don't really connect with a freshman when you're a senior. I mean, maybe you do, but like the fact that all of his friends are seniors is pretty wish fulfillment implausible to me. And it's only undercut by the fact that he is actually a 20 year old you know like the actor is and you it's easy to forget that he's a freshman and that he's supposed to be a totally different age than the seniors that he spends most of his time with fair yeah but when i was a senior i had some friends who were freshmen and it was mostly because of marching band and this is going to become relevant as the crush on emma watson escalates i very briefly dated someone three years younger than me. And I'm not sure that that is something that I should be admitting on public air. It was a little borderline. It felt borderline at the time too. Uh, it was not when I was a senior and she was a freshman. It was a couple years later, but it still felt a little odd. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird area. I mean, there are states that have like Romeo and Juliet laws where if they're both young, but one crosses that you know that 18 line before the other one does you enter some weird territory exactly yeah yeah illegal in some states and not others right well i never had any things like that going on but i did have again through marching band a lot of friends who were one year older like everybody i was close with in marching band was one year older than me so when they ultimately graduated i did feel like a gap for a while. Mm. So there's a little bit of that. And th th that's coming up here as the, as the year goes along as, as one might suspect, but Sam and Patrick take Charlie to a party. You know, it's, is like his first crazy party. I didn't have any crazy high school parties. I, that's something I missed out on. Same. Eventually there were some college parties, but even that took a little while. I think part of it is because we went to a nerd school. We went to a magnet school. 
the parties weren't quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to any parties with booze until college, so I'm I'm with you there. Okay, well I'm glad that we're at least lockstep in some ways at this point in the story. But pretty soon here, Charlie eats an edible at the party, like oh here have a brownie, and like while he's high, he's much more sociable, and he's like chatting people up. And one of, one of the things that happens here while he's in his cloud is he stumbles across Patrick in a back room making out with Brad, the quarterback of the football team, which Patrick implores him not to share because apparently Brad is in the closet. And if it came to light that he was gay, it would cause a lot of problems. Like he'd have falling out with his social circle, but also his dad would not be cool with it. Makes sense in 91, for sure, yeah. And yes, makes sense. Yeah, I would have to say maybe my single least favorite trope in coming-of-age stories is the accidental ingestion of drugs. It is very common, and it's so, so stupid. I feel like that is just such an unlikely thing to happen. I mean, I think it kind of serves a purpose where it is like, oh... You know, he's he's inexperienced in life and innocent and not willingly taking drugs because we still want to see him as this kind, innocent soul. But we still want to let him experience the escapism of drugs. It just pisses me off. It's it's in so many of them. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And, and this is maybe the iconic example to me of when he has the brownies in the his first party. Charlie also admits to Sam that his best friend killed himself, and like, not that long ago. But this is also the only time we hear about this guy. So like, who was this? I was wondering, throughout the movie, Charlie is writing letters to somebody, and he's always saying, Dear friend, oh, it's been a while since I talked to you. And so I thought maybe like, it was that guy. But who was this guy? (laughs) So this plot point makes a lot more sense in the book. First of all, it gives us a reason to see why the character is troubled. And it's it's like a uh, a red herring for why he's so depressed and so socially detached. That's his trauma. Well, not to spoil, there's going to be a twist on what his another important and in fact what we are to believe the more important trauma is in his life yeah i mean you can't you don't need to have just one trauma <laughs> you, you can have multiple that's true that's a good point and he references it more often in the book and it also happens like in the very first chapter in the book not here where we're like a third of the way into the the movie Yeah. And there is a reveal at the end that I'm just going to say now, because I don't think it's much of a spoiler, but he's writing the letters to himself. Like at the end, it shows one of the letters and it says Charlie comma at the top. Like, okay, he's writing to himself. Very dear Evan Hansen, because spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen that one, the the letters, the, the dear Evan Hansen letters are written by Evan Hansen. Interesting. So it's like a exercise that his therapist has him do that he's writing, writing letters to himself. 
the book is a bit more ambiguous, at least for in, in perks I'm talking about here. It's more ambiguous about who the letters are to, and it remains a thing of fan speculation is who exactly was he writing to? Was it himself in the book? There's like one passage where he talks about witnessing someone in the distance who recognizes him or something like that. And they think maybe that was the person and it's actually someone who's not him, but it's not very clear. It doesn't have the same reveal that it's actually him that he's writing his letters to, but I kind of like it. It kind of fits. So I I wish they'd had that in the book too. It felt like the outsiders to me of pony boy sitting there. It is typewriter, but on their way home, the, the three kids, hear a mysterious song on the radio and they're all like oh this is a great song but what is it i've never heard it before and this was another key to me that wait a minute this is not the present (laughs) like no one is shazamming this song (laughs) or even even a couple years before shazam you could just google like what lyrics you heard a little snatch of the song and then you'd have the song but no this is going to be the mystery song throughout the rest of the movie people will be wondering what is the song gotta find this song so that i can put it on a mixtape for emma watson (laughs) i just want to point out in 2004 so i guess that's 13 years later Heroes by David Bowie was selected by Rolling Stone as the number 46 greatest rock and roll song of all time. This is not an obscure song. And part of their thing... Okay. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about this. Yes, I'm glad you said that because something that sets us apart, Dan and I, is Dan knows way more about music. But let me say that the characters in this film are supposed to have like hipster, deep cut encyclopedic music tastes but the examples they are always bringing up do not suggest that like they play a beatles song oh i don't know if you heard of this music group (laughs) they're pretty under the radar they're called the beatles and then later on it's like oh you know there's this other guy his name is david bowie it's like you know believe it or not i've heard of david bowie I, I'm not super deep into music culture. I know who David Bowie is. He's the guy that Jermaine from Flight of the Concords is imitating when he sings Shiny as the Crab and Moana, guys. <laughs> I don't know if they would have had that reference point in this story, but yeah. No, you're right. Especially there's more obscure pop culture things that the fact that none of them would know one of David Bowie's like four most famous songs. It just does not stand up to scrutiny, but I will say the song itself heroes does capture the, this is like the iconic line from perks. It's I feel infinite is what he says. And then in the the book, the line is in that moment, I swear we were infinite and it does kind of have that feeling. One, one thing I like about this movie and this story in general is it, it does capture the, intensive emotions and the alternating feelings of despair and infinite possibility. And I feel like Heroes is a good example of just this huge sound representing this huge future, this this sense that anything could happen. And I, I think it's a great pick for the quote unquote tunnel song, even if it doesn't 
logically stand up to much scrutiny. So I don't really hold that against it too much, even though I think it's really stupid that Patrick wouldn't recognize like the most flamboyant, genderqueer, weird guy. Uh, his most famous song. It's like David Bowie should be an icon to him. He should know heroes like the back of his hand. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just relieved that we're on the same page here because, yeah, for like music nerds, they don't seem that way. It's, yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, can you believe it? They're playing a real good song at the homecoming dance. And it's like, it's Come On Eileen, which is like, one of the 25 most popular songs of all time. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's like you could hear that at any bar. Amazing. They played a, oh, they're playing good music. Wow. Not this popular stuff. They're playing something for us obscure cultured people. Yeah, right. Come on, dudes. Sam and Charlie bond some more when he helps tutor her to improve her SAT score. So I guess he's like very smart in many areas or she's just lazy, doesn't go to class. But I guess it works because she takes the test again, does better. And eventually at Christmas, she's got her higher scores from the test and they're celebrating she gives him a typewriter and she also gives Charlie his first kiss. And they have this conversation about how he's never been kissed before. And she says that she wants his first kiss to come from somebody who loves him, which I guess hers did not because she says it was from her father's boss. So... One of many heavy moments that lands here in this film because she admits that she was sexually abused as a child, like she was 11. Yeah. Yeah, it's a poignant moment. Um, for all my complaints about Emma Watson, and I I do think her performance is not a good thing in this film. I thought this scene, they had really good chemistry and I could feel... Every single emotion that I think the movie was trying to make me feel their their chemistry together, her dark moment of turning into some deep trouble and trauma that she has, and then subsequently her her tenderness towards Charlie. It's it's a strong scene. And in the director's commentary, Stephen Chbosky says that it's his favorite scene in the movie. And I, I think it's a good scene. Yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe a heavy moment to drop here that's going to have some pertinence as we continue discussion of the movie. Um, I've actually never kissed anybody. Really? So, yeah. And I trust that this is going to be important as the movie goes along because it just is. So that's going to be something <laughs> that uh, we're going to return to. Because one of the quirky, hipstery things that Sam and Patrick are really into is that they are part of a Rocky Horror Picture Show shadow cast. I guess this is like a weekly thing. 
around here in Fairfax, Virginia, there was a weekly shadow cast that was going for years and years. Every Friday night at midnight, they would screen Rocky Horror Picture Show, and there was an ongoing cast who would show up and act out the different roles in front of the screen. Have you ever been to one of these, Dan? No, I am disappointed. They, they're not doing them anymore. I really wish I had gone... I had heard about them and I like only now, only after they stopped it, do I realize that would have been a really cool thing to have done. It's like the cult movie, the cult movie watching experience. And I, I wish I had gone. Right. So there's a couple reasons I suspect they might have stopped. Their model was a second run theater, which meant that they would get movies once they were no longer being shown at first-run theaters, and so they were cheaper and they could sell tickets real cheap to the college students. Recently, I guess, it became harder to do that, and so they're just a first-run theater now. That might be part of it. The other is that Disney bought Fox, and so I've read that as part of that deal, it's now become way harder to do like retro screenings of old movies in the Fox catalog because you got to go through Disney. Uh, yeah. God damn it, Disney. <laughs> but it was something that went on for decades and decades that they would screen Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I came close to seeing it in 2015 when I had a year-long movie pass to this theater. But for whatever reason, I didn't get around to trying to see it until like the last week of the year, which just happened to be the one week of the year they didn't do it. And so we got there at midnight and it wasn't going on. And and you saw the night before instead. That's right. So I've shared this story. So now you're putting the pieces together. You're filling in the holes. <laughs> but then in 2017, I worked at an escape room not too far from that theater and I heard that they were going to see it. The, my coworkers at the escape room, who were mostly like college students, and I was in my 20s. Um, but I went with them. And it's good that I did, because I, what I learned is that it's important for virgins, newbies to the film, to go along with more experienced people. The way that Charlie does in this movie. Interesting. And it's it's a pretty wild time. There's like a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah. But so <laughs> one of the things that happened was I got pulled up on stage and there was like this girl, young woman also pulled up on stage. And like one of the people, one of the regulars is like, now kiss. And she she said, no, she is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And um, so <laughs> great thing to have happen in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> um, one close call there. Yeah. Huh. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of importance put on the Rocky Horror Picture Show shadow cast in this film. Like multiple scenes are set at these shadow casts. Uh, but at one of them, Sam's boyfriend, who's this dude named Craig who's just kind of there in several scenes as an obstacle. Like, we're, we're hoping that Craig is going to get out of the picture because, I don't know, she just doesn't seem very close with Craig. And Craig is not our protagonist. Uh, but he's just kind of a character in being 
He he was there before Charlie ever was. Stephen Chbosky talked about Craig, the character, in his director's commentary as not something against Craig personally, but how so many young people have their version of a Craig, someone who's not really invested in the relationship, but is just kind of the cool older person who really the only thing that's cool about them is that they like don't go to high school. They don't they don't attend the regular things. And so there's a, a slight air of mystique and culture about them because maybe they've also like, I don't know, taken a class on foreign film or taken a class on photography or something like that. And how so many of us need to get a Craig out of our system before they realize that that's not the type of person you should really be spending your time with. Yeah, because what, is he a year older? Is he at college already or something? Yeah, he's in, he's a college kid. I don't know if he's a freshman or not, but he he's definitely uh, in college. Okay, so that's why he's there sometimes and other times not. But uh, at one of these Rocky Horror Picture Show things, he's not there to play the role of Rocky, who is like the Frankenstein monster that gets made, and he's basically just a buff almost naked guy who's running around but because he's not there to be rocky charlie is rocky now so he is out there performing with the group and he gets noticed by one of the friends in the friend group who is named mary elizabeth she's played by may whitman her <laughs> wait is that actually it, wait a second is she Anne in Arrested Development? Oh, yeah. That's that's the main thing that she is. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I didn't put that together. How did I not put that together? I love Arrested Development. I don't know. Okay. I No, that was dumb on my part. What I recognized her from was the movie The Duff, which was a 2015 film that I saw. Oh, I've seen that one, too. That was the movie that made me understand that Mae Whitman is not just someone who needs to be a supporting actress that she has the chops to do whatever she wants to do. And she is very good in this movie. I thought in, in playing someone not too unlikable. Oh man. The fact that she's Anne in Arrested Development, she's been, yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. She's the voice actress of Katara. Yep. And that's her what? other thing. Yeah. Oh my God. She's everywhere. Okay. That is wild. I'm learning a lot tonight. Uh, it's, it's it's verging into a long episode, so that's okay. Uh, hopefully, you're enjoying these revelations, listeners. I have a lot of fondness for Mae Whitman, and I will support her in anything she does. And uh, I want to say this without outing myself: certain statistical anomalies align with me and Mae Whitman, and and I, I don't want to do that for fear of uh, people stealing my identity online, but. I support Mae Whitman, and I feel connected to her. Okay. That's a weird thing to say, but <laughs> I guess if you don't want to share, you don't have to share. Uh, fine, I'll go ahead and say it. She and I were born on the same day. I, I don't expect we have enough listeners to worry about data miners <laughs> doxing us. Yeah, that's probably a good point. Yeah, but no, she, she's really good here. And uh, she's funny, but also like plays the slightly off-putting version very well, which is like the opposite of what she's doing in the Duff, where she's super duper likable. 
Right. Here she's like Anne with additional layers. Like she's a more complex character than Anne, but she's not Emma Watson. Right. And that's the important thing to Logan Lerman is that she's not Emma Watson. Right. But uh, she she's kind of been horning in after Logan Lerman for a while. Like, I think by this point, characters have actually come up to him and said, oh, you know, Mary Elizabeth is interested in you. But it's after this Rocky performance that she voices her interest in him and asks him to the Sadie Hawkins dance, which they go to. And now Charlie finds himself in the unexpected predicament of being in a relationship that he doesn't especially want to be in. And, you know, he's kind of grappling with the idea that he should be happy here because he was a loser before and now he's got somebody who's interested in him in a ongoing way, but he's not into it because he's not into her. And so he's got to find a way to end things. And <laughs> what ends up happening is probably not the best way to do that. Yeah, th this whole segment, Whitman is doing just a great job of increasingly making you realize how unpleasant it must be to be her boyfriend, at least when she's at this specific phase of her life. And it's pretty funny. But yeah, this, this scene that you're about to talk about is my favorite scene in the book. This, this whole Christmas and New Year's segment is pretty great. But yeah, so there is another party then. I guess it's a New Year's party. Something we haven't said yet is there's a lot of focus on clocks in this film. Just the passage of time. Countdowns. Like, Charlie's got his countdown of all the days in all of high school. And obviously you count down on New Year's. The shop class project is everybody's got to make a clock. Which, a clock is not an easy thing to make. <laughs> I think what it is, is like they get the mechanism and they stick it onto whatever wooden thing they make but just i mean if you've read or watched watchmen like there's a lot of pieces in if you had to mechanically put the clock together somebody gave me like a steampunk clock make your own clock for christmas this year and it seems like a lot of work i haven't started it yet i also now that i'm thinking through the plot i'm i'm not sure is this actually happened on new year i don't remember when this happens no it it could be though i mean there is is it New Year's? Okay. I, I'm not sure. There's definitely a New Year's party. I don't know if this happens then or if it's a little later. I wonder if there's like a set time of year that Sadie Hawkins happens. But uh, that's neither here nor there, really. At some point, there's a party and they're playing Truth or Dare. And the dare that Charlie gets is kiss the prettiest girl in the room. And he immediately kisses Emma Watson when he's there with his girlfriend, Anne. Mae Whitman, <laughs> Mary Elizabeth, Katara. And yeah, it doesn't go over well with anybody. No, uh, this is where I'll say that I've had people in Truth or Dare dared to kiss me two separate times. And both times they said, no, they're not going to do that. So oh, again, a <laughs> great, great thing to have happen. Yeah. More than once. Um, anyway, moving forward. This uh, fallout from this incident means that Charlie's not really welcome to hang around this group anymore. Makes sense. 
Well, the movie more so than the book really leans into this specific thing and makes it like the equivalent of the end of second act, start of third act breakup in a romantic comedy. It's like he's made all this friends. He's tied in this group. He has his girlfriend. And then, oh, here's the thing that makes it so seem like, well, will he really have these friends? Will he really have this social group? Right around, we get to the little past the two thirds point of the movie. So it it pushes this specific plot beat very hard and like the isolation that Charlie is feeling very hard right here. Right, because now that he's on the outs and he's by himself again, things start to quote unquote get bad. We're getting a lot more of this crazy, chaotic, experimental editing blips and bloops of the past leaking through. I really liked the editing in this movie. I don't know what your thoughts were. No, I thought it was good. I agree. But he gets a chance to redeem himself somewhat and get back in with the group because something that happened over the break is that Brad's dad found him and Patrick together and beat up his son. So he's got like a black eye back at school and there's a confrontation between Brad and Patrick where Brad disavows him and calls him a anti-gay slur and they start fighting. So Brad's jock friends step up and start pounding Patrick, Ezra Miller. So Charlie jumps in and in another moment that I saw echoes of the outsiders, he goes into like a fugue state. And when he comes to the jocks are all crumpled on the ground and he has bruised hands. So somehow he's become like a brawling master and was able to fight off all these dudes in his delirium. Yeah, this is foreshadowed a little more in the book because we get reference to when he was in his dark state the previous school year when he eventually ended up, I guess, going to like an institution for a bit. One of the things he did is he snapped on another person and I think there's another boy in his class. I forget the context and beat him up real bad, like lost control of himself and doesn't really remember exactly doing it, but like really badly beat up the guy. And it like talks about how his brother. So his brother is a little more prominent in the book than it is in the movie. He's a football player in college and he kind of has a close relationship to him. And his brother like offhandedly says, yeah, man, if you're going to be a good fighter, you have to go for the eyes, the throat and the knees. And apparently like in this fight, when he was in eighth grade, he took that to heart and like really messed up this kid that he fought with. So it paves the way for us to have Charlie just unleashing his sort of messed up, dominating other kids in physical fights skill or whatever you want to call it. I don't know, but it has a little bit more context here. But yeah, the, we don't actually see it. It's very striking. It's not until... I think we eventually get glimpses of it, but it's like a it's like a frightening lost control of his mind that seems to come almost out of nowhere in the movie. Yeah. To quote Dwight Schrute, 
The eyes are the groin of the face. <laughs> and Ezra Miller is great in this scene when he's confronting Brad, his closeted gay lover, and I don't know, pushing at the bounds of the agreement that they have to not acknowledge their romance together and just like the tension that he has that's kind of bubbling. And man, you really feel bad when everybody starts pounding on Patrick and like Emma Watson comes in to try to break it up and she gets thrown out of the the ring where people are beating up on Patrick. And it's, I don't know, it's an intense moment. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that... I mean, I guess it was defense in a sense, but I I feel like Charlie would have to like at least be suspended for a while or something. Yeah. After you beat the shit out of multiple people. But the fallout is that now he's back on the good side of Patrick and Emma. Uh, Sam. Sam. <laughs> and actually for a while, Patrick is like closer than anybody else to charlie and like following him around and i was kind of wondering what was going to happen next because at one point he mentioned that he was hanging out with brad at like swanson park and then he says hey charlie you want to go to swanson park and yeah pretty soon he actually kisses charlie then he apologizes for doing that. But obviously he feels a bond with him for having saved him from this fight. The movie doesn't linger too much, and neither does the book, on Patrick's, I don't know what the right word is, his his struggle. It's a minor theme to the film, which is almost a shame because Miller is good enough that he could have carried much more of that, I think. But... It is, it's a bizarre moment when he kisses Charlie because on the one hand, you're really feeling for Patrick, but also like the entire movie is framed from Charlie's perspective and we know that he doesn't swing that way at all. He's just like trying to be kind and there for everyone. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's a bizarre moment. Yeah. But now we're close to the end of the school year and partially because of Charlie's ministrations and tutoring. Sam gets into her dream school. She's going to Penn State. And at prom, we learn just kind of as an aside, she breaks up with Craig because I guess he was cheating. I, I feel like we could have seen that scene, but we're sticking from Charlie's point of view, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it seems like a big thing to be told rather than shown. Yeah, I kind of agree. It does this thing where it's kind of like straddling the line of the subjective perspective, which is what the novel is, because it's all written from the perspective of a letter narrating it and the more objective perspective where we're actually seeing the things happen. I feel like you're right. We could have seen that scene. But as Sam is about to leave for college, she shares a farewell with Charlie and they talk about like... Oh, gee, Charlie, how come you never made a move on me? But, like, he did, though. <laughs> I think it was pretty public that he did, and there was, like, a whole fallout about it. Uh, I, it was, what she actually says is, why did you never ask me out? But, like, 
when would he have done that? How much time has passed? She was in a relationship. Yeah. I don't know. An odd thing to ask, but they both acknowledge that he's been into her for a long time. And so they kiss again. Uh, they get handsy. And at this point, the flashbacks are just going nuts. Like something is setting Charlie off. And what we find out is that his Aunt Helen, who's been the central character of all these flashbacks, actually sexually abused him as a little kid, which is very weird. Very, you know, never a good thing. Yeah, it's it's a really controversial twist in the book. I mean, in the movie, too. But in the book, it's very bizarre because the book ends with this scene and seeing her off and it talks about how he's freaking out and how he's not sure how he's going to cope with her not around. And so you think, Oh, the reason that he is freaking out right now is because Sam is leaving. And then it says epilogue and it says, well, it turns out that I had entirely repressed this memory where my aunt had sexually abused me. And that was brought to the forefront when I started hooking up with Sam and now I am coping with that in a mental hospital. And that just kind of gets out of nowhere from the book. It, it's like a gut punch twist, if not very believable as a twist. The pacing here is a little different because we still have about 15 to 20 minutes left in the movie when we get very strong implications that this is what he is flashing on. But yeah, it is weird. It, it's debatable what it brings to the story itself. I guess maybe it deepens the hard times that he's suffering. I don't know. What did you think of this twist? I mean, it gives the two of them something in common. I don't know. I knew something bad was going to come of once all the flashbacks wove together. Yeah. I don't know if I specifically foresaw this, but if what you're saying is accurate, I, I at least think that it flows a little better in the movie than it sounds like it does in the book. Okay, I can see that. But I also need to read the books, and I haven't. Not this whole month, I'm sorry. But in general, I should just read more books. So I can't fully comment because I don't know. Oh yeah, no worries. It's It was not a, a written requirement that we do it. So, you know, I uh, no worries at all, but... This is one I would recommend, and I, I don't know if you would... We'll see where your rating lands on it, but if you were connected enough to the story that you would want to encounter it again, but in text form, because I think getting it from a subjective perspective with a much more literary tone transforms it a little bit. Or I suppose you could flip that around and saying getting it as a film as opposed to a very subjective perspective transforms the story quite a bit. Yeah, and epistolaries are certainly unique. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever read that one? I am not going to be able to pull the title out of my mind, but the one about the kid who hums the national anthem, or, yeah, that's it. You're just supposed to, like, sit with, or stand with your hand on your heart during the national anthem, but instead he hums. Did you ever read that one? Nothing But the Truth by Avi. Okay, that's one that we could have discussion about. Was it ever made into a movie? I don't know if it was made into a movie, but since we're talking about ones that weren't necessarily made into movies today, 
the gut punch at the end of that one, like where he gets sent to the school that they like celebrate freedom of speech. And they're like, we're glad to have you on our side. But then they don't have a track team. And he's like pulled away from all his friends and it's painted as very bleak. Definitely. I remember that one. Mm hmm. Although it seems like you could make new friends. I mean, people do change schools, so. Yeah. I don't know. But it's like an almost like a Twilight Zone ending, like a stick the knife in. Like a ironic, dark twist. I need to reread Nothing But The Truth. I think we're talking about the same one. Yeah, that sounds right. Avi was a favorite of mine through middle school. But yeah, I always thought that one... That's also the one that has like a multimedia presentation like it has newspaper articles and like a write-up when he gets sent to the principal by the teacher and so it's like all these different perspectives yeah it's a bunch of different documents yeah also dracula is an epistolary Uh, i really like epistolary novels in general i like how it basically forces the author to fully inhabit the brain of the character one i mentioned a couple episodes ago that i've finished a few drafts of novels in my day and one of them was an epistolary nice yeah as i've said a couple times i'm i'm really impressed that you've written full books maybe someday i'll read some i guess i don't have the best track record of reading books but i i do read them sometimes and i would read yours (laughs) there's a little more of the movie left though and so once sam is out the door and off on her way to college Charlie does have this breakdown. He calls his sister and she can tell it's getting bad. Oh, it's getting bad. Got to call the cops. And so they come and get him and take him to a mental health facility. And this is where it's made more explicit that this abuse happened at the hands of the aunt because he confesses it to his psychiatrist, who's Joan Cusack randomly in like this last two minutes of the movie one thing i learned from the director's commentary is that he was able to cast cusack and paul rudd who were two that he really wanted to cast but the only way he could cast either of them was for one day of shooting total for each of them which for paul rudd i was like oh i guess he really only appeared in a classroom like the entire movie i didn't really think about that but cusack you can feel that she's just there for a very short thing. Yeah, they definitely did a better job of like burying that with Rudd because he pops up frequently in the film. But yeah, it's always in that one environment. But like after this is made clear, his parents regard him differently, especially the dad, because in a second here, I'm going to just drop a, like a laundry list of similarities between this one. And it's kind of a funny story. But like there's a sense that the dad doesn't necessarily embrace his like sensitive nature and like kind of thinks of him as you know lesser than just kind of like a weakling and i mean there's not a lot of character to the dad but he's always like looking askance at charlie because the bigger brother is like a star football alum and so the the dad's just kind of always brusque. And I buy it more here than I did with Jim Gaffigan in the other one. <laughs> yeah. And in the book, there's even more to the dad's personality. It's like this whole thing where he is very brusque, but 
he has like consciously decided not to be abusive. That's a good thing to decide. Yeah, because he grew up in an abusive environment. But there's one time when he smacks Charlie. Oh, okay. And so it's like, oh, he breaks the breach. But in general, he's like, he's brusque, but ultimately like caring for Charlie. And there's a little more dimension to it. But yeah, I agree. I I can see that connection. I also feel like a solid 50 plus percent of coming of age stories, at least from a boy's perspective, have some of those daddy issues where daddy is not okay with this alternate path that the son is taking like it wasn't that also in um the stupid one with the the john hughes one some kind of wonderful yes that one one of the ones with a bad title gotta go to college yeah and he doesn't want to go to college he wants to spend (laughs) every cent he's ever earned on diamond earrings for the first date (laughs) yeah with the back to the future lady right Friends, go back and listen to it. It was like our eighth episode. Or, I don't know. A little later than that. Yeah. That's another weird move. That's one that comes up a lot. A lot of connections. <laughs> With Dime Store. Or what What do you say? Ordered from Wish. Yeah, the Wish.com. Yeah, with the <laughs> Wish.com version of Michael J. Fox, Eric Stoltz. <laughs> so charlie does his brief stay or i guess we don't know how long he's there but he's at the the mental ward for a a bit recovering after this revelation and once he's out he reconnects with sam and patrick they're on like a weekend from college or something and sam shares that her roommate is really into music and wouldn't you know it she knew what the tunnel song was the number 46 greatest rock and roll song of all time. This person really into music was able to identify it. Wow. <laughs> and so the last shot of the movie is them recreating the tunnel scene. But now it's Logan Lerman standing in the back of the pickup truck dramatically, which we didn't say earlier. But uh, there's like a very cinematic shot of Emma Watson standing back there as the wind whips and they're driving along. But now here it is, Charlie. He's embraced his writerly side. He's going to live a more engaged life in the moment. And he's feeling infinite, so they say. So what exactly does that mean, feeling infinite? What do you think? So to me, that is simultaneously a sense of possibility for anything that could happen in the future. And also just feeling a super heightened reality in the moment. Just all of the emotions and the experience aligning into something that the overall experiential element of it surpasses one's brain's ability to actually process that experience. It's it's just everything is heightened, but it also is something that extrapolates out into this world that is yours to conquer when you are a young adult when you're an adolescent. That's what it means to feel infinite to me. And I do feel like this story in general makes me feel that teenage feeling. That's the name of a song that I read referenced in a different young adult book. It's called That Teenage Feeling by Neko Case. And it's like feeling like you're young again. Or perhaps if you're young when you're watching this, capturing how you actually feel in that moment. But when you're older like me, being able to feel that feeling again. 
I think this story does a good job of it, and I feel like that is what quote unquote feeling infinite is. But what do you think, Brian? What does it mean to feel infinite? Oh, nice. That's quite a good explanation. I was going to say I, I didn't have something that good to end on, but actually, what that makes me think of is when I gave the student speech at my college commencement. And another guy who spoke there was a professor, I think an English professor, a guy named Clay Clemens. And his speech ended with a quote or a thing that he said. I mean, I, I assume he wrote it to begin with. He said something along the lines of, you should always be able to look back at this moment when it's always spring and you're forever young. Hmm. And that was very poignant and stuck with me. And I don't know how it came about, but I happened to, the next year, watch the video from that commencement. And he was the speaker again. And he made the same speech. Uh. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, on the one hand, he's got a good speech to give, so they call on him to do it again. But like... Because I was the student speaker, they gave me this thing called a Jefferson Cup, which is like a, a trophy thing, this polished silver trophy. And, you know, I've got it in my case next to my <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell silver medal from the Scholastic Writing Awards. <laughs> but apparently Clay Clemens has got like 25 of these things. <laughs> <laughs> they just give him one every year for making the same damn speech. I guess it's always spring for him. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny. And that's The Perks of Being a Wallflower from 2012. <laughs> yeah. So, Dan, do you have some good things about this film you want to talk about? It's kind of hard for me to separate the good things of the movie from the good things of the book. One thing I really like about the movie specifically is I feel like the cast works. It's a good cast. I don't think every single casting is good. But even when the castings themselves are dubious, I really felt like these people were friends and had chemistry and had connection. It just really did feel like it was a all in everyone was invested film, which is not something you can take for granted, I don't think. So I guess in short, I would say good cast chemistry. Yeah, nobody was really phoning it in. In this one. There's no Antonio Banderas's from Spy Kids 2. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Not quite a positive or negative. I just wanted to point out that I saw like a lot of similarities between this one and it's kind of a funny story. We have a boy protagonist who's clearly an insert for the author. Who at some point stays at a mental facility and, like, gets moderately better by deciding to be a writer and bonding with an Emma. <laughs> Would that we all could bond with an Emma. Another potential episode title there. <laughs> yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I do think some of that is just genre conventions of the coming-of-age novel, particularly, like, from a male perspective, there's like certain boxes that are always going to be ticked. And so I think if we watched three more, like if we were watched even some kind of wonderful now, we'd be like, oh, it's got 
some of these things in common here. I mean, in that one, he doesn't go to a mental facility. I think that one specifically is very striking and how he leans on his artistry to get out of it is like a very distinct theme shared between the two. But I don't actually peg this as all that similar overall to it's kind of a funny story because I think the focus on mental health is a little bit different and the time span is very different. So the growth and the character focus feels very, very different. That's a good point. This one takes place over a year and that one takes place over five days. So that's a big difference. But I can see why you would make the connection for sure. I mean, it was, it's like, there's a lot of internal narration. There's a lot of focus on that. He's depressed. So yeah, I don't know. I, I just kept picking up similar vibes, but you're right that it's, it's a different presentation the vast bulk of the story he's on the outside as opposed to on the inside of one of these facilities. Maybe I'm also using the books, like the books I think of as much more different than the movies are different, I guess. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of a funny story is intensely comedic and very snarky. Whereas perks of being a wallflower kind of wallows in its drama a little bit more and so okay maybe that's the thing that's keeping them separated in my brain i don't know but for me the good things are like you said we've got some charismatic actors here and it kept surprising me with the recognizable faces yeah including i mean even the the dylan mcnermott american horror story dude ezra miller tom savini it's maybe a 7 out of a 10 as far as being a names movie. Right. So there's no just Tom Cruise standing around in the background, but yeah, it's people that you know. And the biggest thing for me is that it's was a relatable story, although hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. Like coming out of your shell, finding friends in high school. I can relate to that. You're having memories associated with Rocky Horror Picture Show Shadowcasts. I can relate to that. Uh, what about some not-so-good things? Or did you have more more good? One thing I like about the movie that I missed in the book is there's a lot of references to songs and how the songs make the characters feel in the book. And the movie could actually have the music and have you feel that thing. So even though it's you know, kind of eye rolly that they would get so excited about come on Eileen that at least has an emotional texture to it of that sense of giddiness and excitement and energy that actually carries out in the movie by really emphasizing those songs and asleep by the Smiths referenced so many times, like you can read the words, but actually hearing that melancholy song does have an impact, you know, like when you're actually watching the movie. So I like actually hearing the songs referenced. Again, I'm kind of still have my baggage of it being an adaptation more than a movie proper in my head. But that's something else that stuck out to me. Right. Well, I guess that's also something to bear in mind when you're reading the books, actually, along with the movie in the same week. It's going to be fresh in your mind. 
all the like tripping points with respect to this film we've kind of talked about for me just that it is repeatedly goofy that these people are so high on their like reputation as music snobs and yet the songs that they are mentioning are so mainstream it never stops being goofy right and then there's also what you said about um perks of being attractive that like <laughs> would a handsome movie star guy actually be so on the outside but uh, as i said i mean anybody can deal with mental health struggles yeah i didn't like this performance the first time through and i think that had more to do with the specific vim- image i had of what charlie should be but i i actually came around on logan lerman as charlie this time around and he actually reminded me of something very specific and what he reminded me of was toby Maguire as spider-man just like really leaning into the geekiness of the character and it's especially kind of goofy because logan lerman is not a gawky weird awkward guy in general but he plays it so well and i don't know i i like his performance here so it, it did ultimately work for me I can kind of see that. I'll say the last few weeks, I've seen a lot more short clips from the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. And I did not remember just how funny they are and how, like, cheesy. I watched Spider-Man 1 less than six months ago, and it is so good. He's so funny in it, and it just does not shy away from making Mary Jane Kirsten Dunst being over the top and Tobey Maguire just being the making these corny lines just with the straightest of faces. And I mean, they're very much Sam Raimi movies. Like it, it feels like a Sam Raimi film. And what I didn't know until after seeing far from home, the new Spider-Man movie, it's not the, no, it's uh, no way home. And something I didn't know until after I saw No Way Home, the new Spider-Man movie, is that the next MCU film, or one of the ones that's coming up the soonest, I think it is the very next one, the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, is directed by Sam Raimi! He's going to make an MCU movie, and it's going to be maybe the craziest one, and it's coming on the heels of the one that incorporated... Tobey Maguire Spider-Man into the MCU. Spoilers if you haven't seen that one yet, but you should have. It got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, not Best Picture, but it, it did get one. Which one did it get? It got effects? Is that what it was? Effects, visual effects. That's usually what stuff like that gets. Yeah. Still cool, though. Poetic. It comes full circle. Yeah, I want to see what Sam Raimi does with it. If you want to see another Sam Raimi superhero movie, check out Dark Man with Liam Neeson. That's one that I like. So aside from the Spider-Mans, I've seen the three Army of Darkness is one. But what's the name? Evil Dead. Or wait. Right. Is that what yeah, it is? No, that's about it. That's about it for me, too. It, yeah, he did Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. Uh, he's got another one called Drag Me to Hell. I haven't seen that one. I've only heard the buzzed on movie coverage, but it sounds intriguing. Yeah, he's just he's definitely got a vibe. Yeah, that's good. Another good thing about Perks of Being a Wallflower, the sister, played by Nina Dobrev, very attractive. Enjoyed when she was on screen. 
<laughs> we don't see too much of her. I mean, she's she's there from time to time. But yeah, I suppose you're right. All right. I, I'm allowed to have one of those every few episodes. There, there's... <laughs> All right. Apparently she dated Sean White for a while, the snowboarder. <laughs> I saw something about Sean White recently. What, did he was he in this most recent Olympics? Yeah, I think it was his last one. Was this his last one? Yeah. I think that's what I saw then. I didn't actually watch any of the Olympics this time around, but I saw some blurb about that. Yeah, he cut his long hair. I've been out since he cut his long hair. Yeah. The flying tomato, they used to say. We have a snowboarding game for the Wii, Sean White snowboarding. Oh man. I think he got wrapped up in some uh, sexual abuse allegations himself. Hmm. Wild times. Anyways. <laughs> we got to bring this thing home eventually. So I will ask you, Dan, is Perks of Being a Wallflower, I guess there's actually a the at the end, at the start of the title, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, is it a good film? Is it good? So I do think it's a good film. I don't know if it's a very good film. That was what I was battling in my head. It's a film that has a lot of competing impulses in my brain. It's got the adaptational element of being taken from a book that I would probably put at either a seven or an eight. But on the other hand, like can't quite capture the nuance of that novel but also even just taken as its own thing has a lot of great energy and a lot of great cast chemistry. But on the other hand, why did the author have to direct the movie? There's no reason for it. And I feel like if you had a good real ass director and not just the author in his vanity project, maybe it ends up better. I don't know. And all these things are competing. Ultimately, I ended up feeling kind of fond of the movie and it's one that I enjoyed spending time with. I'm going to give it just barely like a the smallest of ticks north of the line between a five and a six. and going to call it very good. And that's where I landed on it. Because, listeners, we have an eight point scale to any newcomers and it runs from one very not good up to eight. Our masterpiece rating known as Tor Day Good. Right, that's an 8 out of 8, yeah. What about you, Brian? So, I'm pretty much right there with you. There were times during the film that I was ready to give it a 7, an exceptionally good. Like, I was really feeling it. I dug the editing a lot, and the way that just all these, like, short snippets of stuff flying in all of a sudden conveyed mental unrest. And there's some good performances. I really like Ezra Miller in the film. The star, Lerman, is pretty good. Emma Watson's stilted accent aside, she's okay. And as you mentioned, people just seem to care that they were involved in this project. I mean, I mean a lot of this is because I just felt kind of a connection to it. I, I was relating to moments in the story. Not the darkest moments, obviously. But... There were things about this high school experience that I recognized. Uh, but it was too cheesy for me to respectively give it a seven. Like, any time I was feeling that, I would think about 
the the time literally there's like a Beatles song that somebody holds up of like, oh well you gotta listen to this. <laughs> it's like what? What are they doing? I've heard of the Beatles. I think anybody alive has heard of the Beatles. And you don't have to be a special music person to know about them. So that, that pulled me down to earth a little. So for me, it's a higher six. It's not just barely six territory. I'm going to call this a very good movie. Okay. Do you think that he could have landed Emma Watson if he was uglier? Uh, well, she she does have a very short haircut in this film. So if we're being completely shallow, I, I prefer her with a longer haircut. I wasn't sure about that because she I feel like there's times when she has longer hair. It's like when she does. Maybe she has it like folded up or something. Oh, like, yeah. No, you're right. There are different times of the year when it looks different. Um, no, I don't think he could have if he was an ugly dude. But who knows? They they bonded over their shared trauma. What are what are your thoughts? I feel like you are itching to say more. No, I, I mean I think this is maybe not the peak movie, but it is a movie where our impressions of the main character are colored by the fact that they were cast as an, an attractive actor, and like everything that happens to the character would have been interpreted very differently if they had been anything other than like Hollywood beautiful, but that's the nature of coming of age movies. And also like they're all four years older than they, their characters are all stuff we've already talked about. And I just, I kept laughing. It's like, Oh, and then I talked, I was, I talked to my freshman English teacher who was Paul Rudd and I was Logan Lerman Wow, dude, you really had a really relatable freshman in high school experience. Really brutal. I'm sorry that you had to look like a movie star for this whole year. <laughs> I'm sorry that you had to chill with the coolest dude of all time, Paul Rudd. And that when you started having a bummer time that you got to hang out with Joan Cusack for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we want to know what you think, listeners. Comment, subscribe, sound off. Just let us know what you feel about this movie, about the podcast in general. Reach out, because we are on the outside looking in. We want to connect. We want to be more than just wallflowers. Introduce us to your friends. You can reach us at thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. I've been off and on reading reviews of the week. I don't have one for this week. Our friend Eric wrote us a review, but I want to hold on to that one for a, a special occasion. I, I think Eric, I, I'm going to encourage Eric to join us at some point on this podcast and maybe I'll, I'll share his thoughts then, but please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from y'all. You, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash goods film. You can email us thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. We even have a Discord now, and a couple of us chat there a couple times a week. So, yeah, we're, we're here if you want to talk to us. Awesome. And so, Dan, February is a pretty short month. We've done four of these young adult book weeks, and on a typical year, February has only got 28 days. 
So what comes next here on Is It Good? Well, that's not the title of our podcast. It's The Goods, but what are we going to be talking about? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. So... Though it could be better phrased. <laughs> Arguably not worse phrased, but certainly better phrased. So I've just been assuming that I would choose a third movie for our theme month at this point. It's something that all of our previous theme months have indulged in a third selection for the person who kicked off the theme month, in that case, me. And so I do have a selection, but I had a hard time picking one. I was going to choose something as a reaction to what you picked. If you had picked something more genre-based, I was going to do a coming-of-age. But since you went the route of teenage drama, coming-of-age, contemporary, I decided I'm going to do something more genre-based. There's a lot of overlap in actors. And some of the ones I was looking at, I was like, oh, well, that stars Emma Roberts. Oh, the, the lead actor there, or the side actor there is someone that we've seen elsewhere. I... I finally found one that I'm going to land on. And one thing that we haven't talked too much about is the glut of post Harry Potter attempts at franchises. And so I'm going to choose a film that was a attempt at creating a franchise that did not quite take off. There were a lot of these, Brian. So I could ask you to guess and it would probably be like your 10th guess. And that was if you were looking at a list on Wikipedia or something. This is the 2008 film entitled City of Ember. It's a science fiction film, and it's based off of a novel of the same name from 2003. This is the one that's got the uh, light bulb on the cover, right? Uh, maybe. I think it's got like a light bulb and the filament inside curly Q says Ember. I'm pretty sure. The poster that I'm seeing doesn't have that, but there could be a version. When you say cover, do you mean? Oh, 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 the novel cover. Yes, I just I looked up the novel just now and it does have that. Yeah. So I haven't read this. I'll say that my alternate pick for this week would have been Aragon, mm. which was another one of these aborted franchise attempts of young adult fantasy. There's so many of them. I was tempted to pick divergent which was one that actually got a couple of sequels i was also tempted to pick maze runner there, there's a lot of them out there that some of them got sequels some of them didn't and i don't think city of ember did although i'm gonna read a little more about it just to make sure about that but that's the one we'll be watching brian i think this was a good pick i'm excited so join us next time listeners thanks i hope you learned something here today <laughs> join us again on the goods <laughs>